Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the spring of 1933, Christine Lundin visited the offices of the nationally renowned Pinkerton National Detective Agency. The 62-year-old grandmother from Harris, Minnesota, had recently suffered a horrific loss, and she was ready to use all of her meager savings to make things right. Detective, I hear the Pinkerton Agency is the best, and I need the best. (laughs) Our reputation does precede us. How can I be of assistance? I need your help finding my son-in-law. His name is Albin Johnson. Oh, yes. The fire in Harris. Those poor children. Ma'am, isn't there a manhunt out for Mr. Johnson? Yes, but the police aren't finding anything. I need someone else on the case. Mrs. Lundeen, are you seeking hope or justice? I beg your pardon? Some say Albin set the fire. If he's found, do you want to ease his pain or lock him up? I just want him back. The police will figure out the rest. It won't come cheap. I haven't much money, but whatever money I have, I trust with you. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a podcast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on the 1933 Johnson family murders in Harris, Minnesota. Last week, we introduced Albin and Alvira Johnson and their seven young children, covered their difficult lives as farmers, and recounted the mysterious fire that killed most of the family. This week, we'll look at the aftermath of the fire, the manhunt for Albin Johnson, and the grand jury which considered him a suspect for murder. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, Albin and Alvira Johnson led rough lives in the farming community of Harris, Minnesota. There was a 14-year age difference between them, but Albin and Alvira had both grown up in Harris and were raised by religious Swedish immigrants. They got married on December 16, 1922, when Alvira was 19 and Albin was almost 33. The couple quickly had their first child, and over the next decade, they had six others. Their eldest was Harold, followed by Clifford, Kenneth, Dorothy, Bernice, and Lester. Their last child, James, was born in 1933. While the couple enjoyed the pleasures of a bustling family life, it was also hard work. The Johnsons had no indoor plumbing and received assistance from the Red Cross. Elvira worked tirelessly to take care of their children and the farmhouse, while Albin struggled to pay the bills while running the farm. Albin struggled with a lot of things, in fact. 
He had a difficult relationship with his father, was unsatisfied with farm life, and was likely ashamed that he couldn't be the provider his wife Alvira needed. Sadly, alcohol became Alban's favorite coping method, though the country was in the middle of prohibition. Alban and his brothers Ted, Yelmer, and Hank were legendary in Chisago County for their impressive alcohol tolerance and their habit of starting bar fights. By 1933, Albin was 43 and his drinking was growing old. While his behavior has never been described as abusive, he wasn't known as a warm family man. This lack of warmth ran in Albin's family. His father, Emil, was a pious church elder who valued hard work and righteousness. But he was harsh towards his own children. His righteousness often turned into self-righteousness, and he did not tolerate failure. Hence, Albin was surprised when 71-year-old Emil Johnson offered to rent the family farm to him in early 1933. Emil was retiring, and Albin's rent agreement was a great way to keep the farm in the family. However, by April, Albin's farm couldn't turn a profit and he fell behind on the rent. His strict father, Emil, gave him an ultimatum. Pay the rent or move out. Albin saw this act as a betrayal and quickly tried to find a new home. He borrowed $20 from his brother Hank for the deposit on a new home in nearby Rush City. He then had the farmhouse packed up by the evening of Monday, April 10th, 1933. The family planned to make the big move the next day. The Johnsons were all set for a hopeful new beginning. But before the sun rose, they met their end. At 3.30 a.m. on Tuesday, April 11th, Rangnar Krantz awoke to the shocking sight of the Johnson farm being consumed by flames. After racing over, Krantz realized that a tragedy had occurred, and he took it upon himself to deliver the terrible news to Alvira's family. <sighs> Peterson residence? Frida? Who am I speaking to? Sir, it's very early. Frida, it's Ragnar Krantz, Alvira's neighbor. There's been a fire at your sister's. How big of a fire? Frida, I need you to stay calm now. I know you've got children around. How big of a fire, Ragnar? The farm is gone. It's all gone, Frida. And my sister? Her family? I... I'm so sorry. No. The children! We got there as soon as we could, but the blaze had already spread. No, no, no. The police are already here working to figure out how it happened. No! The Johnson's home had burned to the ground, and investigators found the remains of Alvira and her seven children scattered throughout the ground floor. Charred bone fragments were all that remained. However, investigators on the scene were able to determine one crucial fact. The body of Albin Johnson was nowhere to be found. The fire quickly became a sensational news story in both local and national papers. Even as early as April 11th, the day of the fire, newspapers publicly confirmed that Albin had not been located. At this point, authorities did not suspect foul play, but this would change with the arrival of A.O. Stark and S.B. Wennerberg, the two men who spearheaded the Johnson fire investigation. A.O. Stark was the 62-year-old Chisago County deputy coroner. 
He was also a businessman, banker, and mortician who ran a mortuary out of the back of the Harris Hardware Store, which he also owned. The Starks were quite influential in Minnesota back then, so influential that they had a town named after them. S.B. Winterberg was the 39-year-old county attorney for Chisago County. He was known as an eloquent speaker and a rising force in local politics. In the days following the fire, Stark supervised an extensive search of the burned-down Johnson House and the area around it. His goal was to find Albin Johnson, but it appeared that Albin had vanished without a trace. In the early days of the case, both Stark and Winterberg tried to remain neutral in their statements to the press. While they acknowledged that Albin was missing, but didn't draw any troubling conclusions about that fact. Privately, however, Stark and Winterberg had a feeling that the fire wasn't just a tragic accident. There was a chance. This was something much more sinister. We've searched the ruins of the house, as well as the surrounding fields and forest. Hell, we even searched this little lake near the farm. There's absolutely no sign of Albin Johnson anywhere. Odd, isn't it? You think he ran off? I'm starting to believe he did. After he set the fire. That's quite the accusation. Let's call it a theory for now, but I think it's worth investigating. Go ahead. See what you find. When authorities first began searching for Albin Johnson, it was seen as a rescue operation to help the only survivor of a devastating tragedy. But it quickly became a manhunt for a murderer. When we return, the hunt for Albin Johnson goes international. And now, back to the story. In mid-April of 1933, the town of Harris, Minnesota was abuzz with fear and speculation after a local farmhouse went up in flames. 29-year-old Alvira Johnson and her seven young children were found dead inside the debris. But 43-year-old family patriarch Albin Johnson was nowhere to be found. Chisago County Deputy Coroner A.O. Stark and County Attorney S.B. Winterberg felt Johnson's disappearance was suspicious, so they held an inquest to gather the facts and solidify their theory. The inquest took place at a local town hall, where a large casket containing the victim's charred remains was rolled out onto the town hall floor. A jury of coroners was assembled to open the casket and inspect the bodies. The coroner's jury concluded that the remains belonged to Elvira and her children. There was no evidence that Albin's remains were among them. Investigators believed Albin had escaped the fire, and the questions they asked Albin's family and acquaintances were designed to prove that theory. Albin's brother Hank gave them key bits of evidence about Albin's mental state. Mr. Johnson, can you elaborate on your brother's state of mind in the days before the fire? On the Saturday before the fire, Albin asked to borrow 20 bucks for a rental deposit on a new house in Rush City. He was broke, so I lent him the money. To your knowledge, was this money used for the purpose intended? I don't know, but Albin went to Rush City that Monday, so I guess so. Did Albin express a desire to leave home? Well, he did mention Canada a whole bunch. Is he a big fan of maple syrup? What? No, we... Me and my brothers, we spent a few years working up in Saskatchewan in our younger days. Real friendly folk up there. 
Albin was just going on about how life was miserable here and how things were just better up north. So, he fled the country- Now wait a minute. I'm no shrink, but I don't think Albin missed Canada. I think he missed... simpler times. That's all. So, it's your opinion that Albin perished in the fire? Yes. That house was built out of white oak. Oak burns fast. It's no surprise the damn place went up in a flash. Albin would have been cremated in an instant. He didn't run away. Although Hank insisted that Albin died in the fire, his testimony also indicated that Albin was thinking of leaving Minnesota. A stronger bit of related evidence came from Albin's neighbor, Rangnar Krantz. The night before the fire, Monday, I saw some car tracks in the snow, leading down from the Johnson farm to the highway. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but maybe someone left the farm that night. You're implying that Mr. Johnson drove away. Albin didn't own a car. They just had a wagon, which they loaded with their belongings. So unless someone else picked him up, I'm not sure. Would you be able to identify the tracks? No. After all the cars and fire trucks last night, I'm sure they'd be obliterated. Thank you, Mr. Krantz. While Krantz may have seen tire tracks leaving the Johnson home, the Johnson's yard had since been overrun with police and fire department vehicles, so it was impossible to verify his claim. Two other pieces of information cast even more suspicion on Albin Johnson. First, Albin had purchased eight sacks of tobacco on his trip to Rush City on Tuesday, April 10th. It's unknown whether Johnson was a smoker or used the tobacco for other purposes, but it seemed that he was stocking up perhaps to sustain his habit over a long journey. Investigators also discovered that Johnson had asked a Rush City local when the next bus was headed north, and just north of Minnesota was Canada. Armed with these clues, the coroner's jury made a final statement at the end of the inquest. It is this jury's opinion that in the case of the deaths of Elvira Lundine Johnson and her seven children, the outcome remains an open verdict. An open verdict meant the jury did not have enough information to conclusively determine the cause of the fire. Yet a mother and her children were dead, and Albin Johnson was nowhere to be found. The entire situation was suspicious. Alvira Johnson and her seven children were buried on April 15, 1933. All eight victims shared one large casket that was adorned with flowers and over 350 mourners attended the service at Rush City's First Lutheran Church. As the town mourned, Chisago County authorities remained active in their investigation. In late April 1933, Stark and Winterberg consulted with Charles Erdman, a doctor from the University of Minnesota who became the state scientific expert on the case. They hoped the respected physician could shed more light on a dark situation. Dr. Erdman, have you determined anything conclusive? I can't be certain, but I do find the body's placement suspicious. How so? They were found where they all went to sleep. Mother and baby in one room, and most of the other children grouped together in another room on their mattresses. I'm not sure what you mean. Assume the fire started small, maybe at the kitchen stove, presumably, at least one of the eight victims would have woken up when they smelled smoke. I suppose that makes sense. Right. They'd have roused the others and tried to escape. But they didn't. 
They just stayed put. Highly unusual. Unless, of course, they were shot or poisoned beforehand. Precisely. Stark and Winterberg already believed Albin started the fire. Now they thought he may have murdered his family first and set the fire to cover it up. With Erdman's findings in mind, Chisago County authorities went public with their accusations. It is now our belief that Alvira Johnson and her seven innocent children were the victims of a cold-blooded killer who is still at large. Mr. Winterberg, are you referring to Albin Johnson? Yes, I am. All our efforts are now directed toward finding Mr. Johnson and bringing him home for questioning. Minnesota authorities quickly reached out to Canada. They enlisted the help of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in the search for Albin Johnson. The police weren't the only ones searching for Albin. Alvira's family, the Lundines, also joined the fray. Alvira's mother, Christine, emptied out her savings to hire the prestigious Pinkerton National Detective Agency. The Pinkerton Agency was founded in Chicago in 1850 and quickly became a force to be reckoned with. Throughout the 1800s, the rapidly expanding agency reportedly stopped a plot to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln, investigated the first train robbery on record, and even pursued the infamous Jesse James. By the 1930s, Pinkerton had at least 20 offices across the country, and they were quite respected. The agency put out a wanted poster for information about Albin Johnson's location and offered a $50 reward, which would be almost $1,000 in today's money. Over the course of late April and early May 1933, the hunt for Albin Johnson continued. A more extensive search of the Johnson farm and surrounding areas was ordered, and this time, there was a significantly larger group of searchers on Albin's trail. Over 300 people came from distances as far as Minneapolis to take their shot at the reward. People called in from as far away as Pennsylvania to report sightings of Albin Johnson. But despite everyone's best efforts, no trace of Albin was found in the United States. Well, luckily for investigators, the hunt in Canada seemed to be yielding results. In early May of 1933, Johnson was allegedly spotted at a farm in Morden, a city in Manitoba. Royal Canadian Mounted Police, how can I help you? Yes, I was calling about the missing man from Minnesota, Albin Johnson. Sir, do you have information on his whereabouts? At the time, I didn't know it, but then I saw those wanted posters that had been going up everywhere. I was reading the description of his outfit, blue suit, gray cap, and then I realized, I think I served that man scrambled eggs. Where are you located, and when exactly did the encounter occur? I live out on a farm in Morden. A few days ago, May 5th, I believe, a man showed up on our doorstep in the morning. He was a bit dirty, like he had been traveling for a while. He was hungry. He begged for some breakfast. Did he reveal anything about where he came from and where he was headed? He only told us he'd just crossed the border from the States the night before, but didn't say where he was going. He was real tight-lipped about things, like he was keeping a secret. Sir, do you have any knowledge of where he went after breakfast? He caught a ride with one of my neighbors. I think they were headed to Winkler. 
the Canadian police determined that Johnson crossed into Canada off U.S. Highway 32, along the border of North Dakota and Manitoba. Since he was allegedly traveling on foot and hitchhiking, authorities felt confident that they would catch up to him. A radio broadcast from the Canadian police advised locals to keep an eye out for Albin, and authorities quickly rushed to Winkler, Manitoba. Their hope was to catch Albin as he arrived, but after a promising start, his trail went cold. There was no sign of Albin Johnson in Canada, but that may be because Albin changed his mind and returned to the United States. On May 6, 1933, it was reported that a man was arrested in Cavalier, North Dakota, just across the Manitoba border. He had crossed the U.S.-Canada border twice without permission, and authorities felt there was a good chance that it was Albin Johnson. They assumed he was doubling back to the U.S. after learning the Canadian police were after him. However, after jailing the man and doing a background check, the Border Patrol officers realized that the man they had arrested was not Albin Johnson. He was Michael Joseph Cohn, an Irishman traveling to see relatives in California. In Canada, investigators began to believe that Albin Johnson was dead. They felt it was possible that, suffering from the guilt of murdering his family, Johnson had taken his own life. It's not an unreasonable supposition, but it also sounds like an easy way to taper down on a costly manhunt and avoid sending locals into a panic. At any rate, the hunt in Canada slowed down. And back in Minnesota, the trail went cold. Despite a lack of concrete evidence, Harris County authorities remained confident that Alvin Johnson had murdered his family and escaped. In the court of public opinion, he was already a guilty man. Over the years, Albin had developed a less-than-stellar reputation in Harris. Very few locals came out to support him, which is why it was up to Albin's grieving family to step up and defend his innocence. Next, we'll cover the grand jury that assembled to indict Albin Johnson for first-degree murder and his family's fight to prove Albin's innocence. Now, back to the story. In May of 1933, investigators from both the U.S. and Canada were on the hunt for Albin Johnson. They believed he had murdered his wife, Elvira, and their seven children before burning down their Minnesota farmhouse and fleeing the country. Though leads in North Dakota and Manitoba seemed promising, they ultimately didn't pan out. But back in Harris, Minnesota, Albin's relatives tried to brave the public speculation as best they could. Albin's father, Emil, was traumatized by the fire at the Johnson farm, which he still owned. The last time Emil saw Albin, he evicted him for not paying rent. It's likely he felt a certain amount of guilt. However, Emil was convinced of one thing. Albin was not a murderer. He was certain his son had died in the fire, too. He asserted this viewpoint in an early May interview with the St. Cloud Times. The reporter writing the story found the widowed Emil grieving in the two-room cottage where he lived alone. Mr. Johnson, is it true that you were forcing Albin and his family to leave your farmhouse? Albin decided to leave. He was moving. He and Elvira, they were going to start over in Rush City. But he was moving because you wouldn't let him stay. That was... That had nothing to do with the fire. The fire in which you believe he died? 
I do. I'm certain of it. Do you have any idea how the fire started? No. I don't know what happened. Nobody does. Not even the police. All I know is my son died with his family. God bless their souls. While Emil argued for his son's innocence, County Attorney S.B. Winterberg gathered evidence to support the theory that Albin murdered his family. Investigators returned to the burned-down farmhouse many times, hoping to find new clues. In early May, there was a possible break in the case when a rifle and two pistols were found in the ashes. This was particularly interesting because Dr. Erdman at the University of Minnesota had confirmed the possibility of a mass murder before the fire. The three weapons could have been what Albin used to kill his family. Unfortunately, Alvira and her children were practically cremated in the fire, so it was impossible to test their remains for previous injuries. There was no way to know what exactly transpired that night. The authorities' case was losing steam, and Wennerberg had to admit as much in interviews with the local media. I'll be honest. Thus far, we have failed to solve the mystery of Alban Johnson's disappearance. But that only means we've got to double down and press onwards until we find more proof of his current location. Mr. Winterberg, are you absolutely certain Johnson is alive? I'm certain he wasn't in the farmhouse when his family died. And you still believe him to be in Canada, despite the false leads? We partnered with the Canadian police because of Mr. Johnson's close ties to Canada, where he once lived. In the days before the murder, he expressed a desire to return there, which gave us a starting point. Am I sensing a reluctance to commit to that line of reasoning now? There are alternative scenarios. It's possible he set the house on fire, got injured himself, and died somewhere nearby. Or maybe he was overcome with the guilt of murdering his family and drowned himself in the St. Croix River. But we've got our best men on the case, and if Johnson were still in the area, dead or alive, I firmly believe we'd have found him by now. Until we do, I'll keep up the search. Winterberg remained convinced of Albin's guilt. But there was a man who believed just as strongly that Albin was innocent. Harry Galpin was married to Albin's sister, Olga. The 49-year-old salesman was adamant that Albin had died in the fire and set out to prove that. He was among the many searchers who visited the Johnson house in the month after the fire. Galpin was desperate to find a clue that would prove his brother-in-law was innocent. And in early May of 1933, he found something that he was certain would clear Albin's name. Galpin, what is this? It's bone fragments, Mr. Wennerberg, from the farmhouse. I found them under the pantry, over a dozen feet away from where you say you found Alvira and the children's bodies. But you never found these. Thank you for your assistance. I also found this. It's melted glass, and I found it right by these bones. What are you trying to prove, Galpin? Well, sir, glass melts at 2,500 degrees Celsius. If your point is that fire is hot, congratulations, you've convinced me. So hot that maybe Alban was simply burnt to a crisp. You could fit Alvira and her seven children's remains into one casket. 
Maybe there just wasn't enough of Alban left for you to identify his body. We're pursuing all leads at this point in time. No, you're not. You think he's a killer. You think he masterminded this whole operation and disappeared, and now you're dragging our family's name through the mud. Albin had a sixth grade education, Mr. Winterberg. Do you really think he's some kind of criminal genius? Thank you for bringing us the evidence, Mr. Galpin. To hell with you. To hell with all of you. Galpin took the remains he'd found to Dr. Erdman at the University of Minnesota, but it's unknown if they were identified as Albans. Authorities were wary of Galpin, and it's possible they never properly investigated his findings. As spring turned to summer, the leads in the disappearance of Albin Johnson dried up. While Johnson was still missing, Minnesota authorities operated under the assumption that he had murdered his family and set their house aflame. Whether he was dead or alive, in their eyes he was still a cold-blooded killer who needed to be brought to justice. So, on October 3, 1933, a grand jury was assembled to indict Albin Johnson. We should note here that no official transcripts of the grand jury proceedings exist. So our account comes from reports and articles. The jury was presided over by Judge Alfred Stolberg, a respected Chisago County judge. Stark and Winterberg's main pieces of evidence were a house had burned to the ground, the woman and children inside appeared to have been murdered before that, and the father of those children had disappeared without a trace. In addition, possible murder weapons had been found in the remains of the house. Their opinion was that Albin had been driven mad by his failures in life and had murdered his family in an act of insanity, perhaps in a misguided effort to spare them from future hardships. Though Stark and Winterberg maintained that Albin had possibly fled to Canada, they also made room for the idea that he had killed himself after the crime or had sustained injuries from the fire that killed him in a different location. A few days after the grand jury met, they reached a verdict. Albin Johnson was indicted in absentia for first-degree murder. However, this didn't mean much. Though Albin was now officially a murder suspect in the eyes of the law, he had still disappeared into thin air. For years after the 1933 indictment, Harry Galpin continued to fight for his brother-in-law's innocence. In October 1936, Galpin wrote a 12-page long public statement, which detailed the mistakes he felt authorities had made. He accused the police and firemen of not properly searching the Johnson property for clues and said that Stark and Winterberg had already made up their mind about Albin before they had thoroughly investigated the case. Those accusations are reasonable, but unfortunately, Galpin's passion got the best of him. The rest of the affidavit descended into conspiracy theories, which made it difficult to take Galpin's side. Stark and his men, they found bone fragments, ones nobody knew about, ones that belonged to Albin, and they tossed them out of the house, tossed them onto the ground where all the firemen and their neighbors and looky-loos trampled them before they could be identified. Galpin even went so far as to accuse Judge Stolberg of being in cahoots with Stark. You see, Stolberg's got connections to our incompetent deputy coroner, A.O. Stark. 
Stolberg's brother is a cashier at the state bank. And guess who's the president of the bank? A.O. Stark. He's a busy and important man, and Stolberg couldn't risk putting his brother's job in danger and making Stark look foolish. Now, could he? No, no, he couldn't. So he ignored the evidence. Galpin even put up public posters accusing Judge Stolberg and his associates of being crooked. Galpin had become somewhat unhinged, but his loyalty to Albin could not be questioned. He even tried to get Minnesota Governor Floyd Olson to clear Albin's name, but he was unsuccessful. Eventually, Galpin was pursued by authorities for his public slandering of Stark, Wennerberg, and Stolberg. He was convicted of libel on October 14, 1939, and served a three-month prison sentence. Galpin was eventually released in January 1940, but died of a heart attack the very next month on Valentine's Day. No other significant clues were ever discovered in the Johnson murder case, and soon the house was rebuilt. Hank Johnson took over the family farm nearly a decade after the 1933 fire that may have claimed his brother's life. So after covering the investigation, it's time for us to decide whether Albin Johnson set the fire and murdered his wife and seven children. Well, I believe Albin is guilty of killing his family and setting fire to his farmhouse. He was a troubled man with a drinking problem whose own father had evicted him. Faced with the deep shame of being unable to provide for his neglected family, he killed Alvira and the children in an act of madness, possibly using the firearms found in the house. Then he fled and disappeared into the unknown. I agree. While it is possible that Albin's remains were simply unidentifiable after the fire, the fact remains that investigators were certain that Alvira and the children died before the fire. It's also suspicious that Albin never used the $20 his brother lent him for a rental deposit. Maybe he actually asked for the money to fund his escape. Where Albin went after the fire is anyone's guess. But one thing is certain. If he really pulled off this disappearing act, then the farmer with a sixth grade education was more clever than anyone gave him credit for. On the surface, Albin and Elvira Johnson seemed like the embodiment of the American dream. They were the hard-working religious children of immigrants who made an honest living in a small farm town with their seven adorable children. But underneath, their lives were plagued by alcohol abuse, poverty, and marital strife. The Johnsons were on the brink of losing everything, and the fire was obviously a horrific tragedy. There hasn't been a single confirmed sighting of Albin Johnson since April 1933. Even today, amateur sleuths in Minnesota are still hunting for clues about the fire and his disappearance. It's possible Albin did die in that fire or took his own life right after. Maybe the answer to the mystery isn't as thrilling as we'd like. But maybe not. Maybe Albin Johnson burned his old life to the ground just to start over again in the Great White North.
Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. For more information on the Johnson family murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Murder in Chisago County by Brian Johnson to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Unsolved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Mike Capozzi, Joe Hernandez, Sky King, Harris Markson, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Carter Roy